Good morning, church. What a, what a, wonder, what a beautiful day it is. <clears throat> Not to coin a turn of phrase there or something, but it is beautiful outside. The sun is shining. I don't know about anybody else, but I started to wonder if we'd ever see the sun for more than a few minutes at a time. So I will take it. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to be seen. Great to see everybody that's here. Excited to close out Second uh, Corinthians. If, if you've been following along, it's a, uh, I don't want to say it's necessarily a challenging book, challenging in any, any other way necessarily, but what Paul is putting to the Corinthians in his second letter are, he's got some pretty clear directives. There's some things that need corrected. There's some things they need to address. And first and foremost is making sure in, that indeed they are following Jesus. <laughs> and he is the source of strength and redemption and power that they're leveraging, not their own understanding, not the power of those in the congregation that seem very learned or very uh, respectable, but Christ alone. Uh, and he's capstoning that today. I call this, uh, kind of t- to steal Paul's own words, final words, um, it's... Th- when we talk about the closure of a book, like the opening of a book, oh, thank you, a little coffee, I have to let it cool down. When we talk about the, the closure of a book of the Bible, much like the opening, there isn't always a lot of substance in the, these chapters. Just like when you say, dear so-and-so, you don't want to overread into that at the beginning of the letter. Sincerely, Chris. What do you mean by sincerely? How sincerely? What, in what way was he sincere? It's just the way we say Goodbye. This is more than that, don't get me wrong, but it's, it can get to a place where it's like, oh, it's the last chapter, let's just skip it because it's just going to be Paul reminding them to, you know, remember who Jesus is and stay the course and I'll be praying for you or whatever. Um, so as we dive into this today, I, I pray that let's read it, know that it's the end of the book and it's going to sound like he's closing his letter out because he is, but there's still a great deal of awesome info in here. And I think for us, things we can take away. We think about our final words that we were going to say to somebody. And speaking of that, we're not ever promised to be able to say more than what we just said. Make them count. That's what Paul's doing. He wrote a long letter, but he ends this in a way that I think is really, really encouraging. So let's read together. The Second Corinthians should be the last page of that book that you've got. And uh, read with me if you... Uh, Want to, if you've got your Bible, feel free to turn uh, and read out of yours, but if not, it'll be here on the screen. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live by him with, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be so, that I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. 
Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study today Paul's final words in this letter to the Corinthians, uh, help us to know that this is a holy scripture, Lord. There are certain passages that maybe really speak to our hearts or encourage us very directly or seem to make a ton of sense and, and ways we want to grow and learn. And then other chunks of scripture maybe feel like they're distant and and maybe not relevant in some regards, Lord. Help us put that stuff aside today and look at this with fresh eyes and understand that uh, these words are indeed breathed by you and are used to build the kingdom and help us to, to, to study them adequately in that regard. Thank you for this time together, Lord. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, final words. Ooh. Now, these are not, to be clear, oh, it's looking like it's not... Oh, man, we're, we're having a pretty good day tech-wise. Let me try to restart this real quick. Looks like Emma's already on the case if it doesn't cooperate. We'll see if I can get it to work. What's that? Oh, it did? Like I said, everything's working perfectly as expected. <clears throat> so to be clear, these aren't Paul's final, final words. If you ever look up the chronology of Paul's letters, this isn't the last one that he wrote. This is the last one that we have written in the, the Bible for the Corinthians, but it's likely not the last letter he wrote to the Corinthians, for all we know. So I, I don't want to overstate the finality of this as if, uh, well, well, this was the last thing that Paul ever said, and thus it's intrinsically more valuable or something like that. But if they were his last words ever, I think they'd be adequate. Uh, it's a challenging letter to write in love. If you've been paying attention as we've gone through this, Paul was not taking a position of like, man, you guys are so cool, and I can't wait to come visit because we're going to have great times, we're going to go like find a coffee shop, and you know, I just want to just love on you, and, all, and that's not his tone. His tone in this letter has been, I'm concerned about you, like a father for their children. I see you making bad decisions that are going to have lasting impact, and I don't want that for you. I want more for you. I want better for you. Christ wants better for you. I know this because Christ wants better for me, and that's what's in his word. But this chapter, I think, sums Paul's wishes up very nicely. The, the way he, 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 he puts his, his final thoughts together kind of walks through the whole letter of 2 Corinthians, reminding them of what's important and why they bother. Uh, next slide, I can't change it. So third time's the charm. Uh, we're going to open straight away with this... Uh, mentioning about two or three witnesses. Now, granted, this is not, you know, this is in context, and he's reminding them here in a couple of ways. This is Paul's third time coming to them, and Paul's quoting Deuteronomy to talk about how the Lord works. So God has law, he's communicated it, and there's a protocol for, for things like this. Um, it doesn't mean that um, God can't do what God wants, but God will not violate his own law because that's not what God would do. Um, very simply put, it's his law, it's perfect, and he's going to, to, to follow it. So Paul's quoting this to remind them that there is a protocol. There's a way that things are done. That has not changed. Um, it's tempting sometimes to say, well, you know, we don't, we're not beholden to the Old Testament anymore. Fair enough, uh, but the Old Testament is still of God. It's breathed of God, and our new covenant, in many regards, uh, fulfilled what was happening there. 
Paul wants them to think about this. There's a way that we conduct business in a church. We talked in our small group today about in his list of bad things that can happen in a church. On that list was disorder, which in many, many places is pretty far down the list perhaps. And it is the last thing that he mentions, but it's still a thing. Disorder breeds chaos. It breeds confusion. So when we talk about what he's mentioning here, Paul himself is not three witnesses, but he is witnessing a third time. So it's a bit of a play on words, but Paul does this, but it does work both ways. Paul is now talking about coming for a third time. He's been saying the same things for three times. He's also mentioned other people, Titus, Apollo, so on on and so forth. They've all been saying the same things. This is not just Paul. This isn't Paul's whim. I'm a big advocate for A, B, or C. This is the work of, of Christ as communicated by Christ to his church. You guys need to be doing this. This is important. So you're probably thinking, two or three witnesses, huh? I, I, I don't usually go back and put all the quotations in, but I wanted to do that here specifically because of this notion of witnessing. Um, so let's, let's just take a quick break and look at these. These are the two that most likely he was referencing. In Deuteronomy 17.6, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Deuteronomy 17 makes it pretty clear. Death sentence is going to require at least two witnesses, ideally three. So you're thinking, oh, okay, well, so big time stuff. Two or three witnesses. Death penalty, pretty big. Deuteronomy 19.15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, this seems to be a bit broader. Two or three witnesses for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense. Death penalty requires two or three witnesses. A charge requires two or three witnesses. So why bring it up? What's the point? The the point I want to make is, first of all, this has been used to negate valid charges in churches. The church has a history that is, in some regards, very, very poor regarding the management of charges allegations within the body. I want to be very clear. Abuse allegations do not require three witnesses. If somebody comes up and says something bad happened to them, that's enough. We begin. What we see in Deuteronomy, what Paul's quoting here, is not, is not a notion that everything in the church, as Paul's would state, must require two or three witnesses, or it never happened. So-and-so did something terrible to me. Well, do you have a couple of witnesses? If not, no charges will be filed. Thus says the Lord. That's not what's happening here. Paul's using kind of a tongue-in-cheek reference to how, how more witnesses add weight to allegations. If, if I saw somebody, if, if your car got backed into, and I say, I think I saw someone else out there and a blue truck that did that. And then two other people say, I saw the same blue truck. Well, now it's probably me or Bruce. We both drove blue trucks today. It's one of us that did it. Most likely, three people saw. Could they all be conspiring? Sure. But it's better than one. And if someone was out to get Bruce or I, you know, one person's good. But we still investigate it. The car was clearly hit. Paul's saying here, this isn't my first rodeo telling you guys this, right? I'm telling you again, there's other people talking about this. Let's, let's pay attention to the fact that just like when we were talking about the death penalty or charges, the amount of which I'm speaking about this matters. Even in Jewish law, witnesses would be found for allegations. So if somebody came up and said, hey, the, uh, the, the Pharisee came over and 
you know, beat me up because I didn't give enough money. And they said, well, that's hard to believe. Was anybody else there? No. They came in the night when I was by myself and did it. An investigation would probably be launched. Okay, well, let's see. Let's go look for some witnesses. Did anybody see anything? Have, did, where were you? Well, I was over here. Can somebody, an alibi. This is not new. This isn't just something we do in America. This has always been the case. At Calvary Heights, an allegation is enough for law enforcement to be notified, period. I can't speak for every church, but here that's how it's going to work. So I just want to be really clear that this is not something where we're going to say, well, you know, I know you said that they did something inappropriate, but it's just your word against theirs. So according to Scripture, we're not going to take action. That's nonsense. We will take action. We'll call the police. And the police will do an investigation and maybe come up with two or three witnesses or put something together. That's the law's job. When it comes to what we're dealing with here, Paul is not in this tiny little blurb in the midst of 2 Corinthians trying to restructure the way that church governance should deal with allegations of abuse. (laughs) He is making mention of the fact that just like in the Deuteronomical law stated, when someone brings two or three witnesses to an event, that adds credence. Paul is saying, my words have credence. That's what this really boils down to. So Paul's pointing out his thoroughness. He has made this accusation before. Well, I tell you, man, we are just going to... you switch there, Emma? I don't know what's going on. It worked, for, it worked for one slide. Slide change here. Yeah, no kidding. Thanks, Professor. So Paul's pointing out his thoroughness. This isn't his first accusation. He said this before. He stated it. He's going over it again and again and again. Please listen, change, do better, get closer to Christ. Thus, you know, he's been here twice before. He's coming for a third time. And what Paul's saying is one man three times is almost as good as three men witnessing once. So Paul is counting himself as I've said it three times and I'm Paul. That means something. But there's also been other people telling you this. This shouldn't be new. Now he's stating this because as we've talked about prior to this, there are some some folks here in the Corinthian church that are trying to denigrate Paul's good name and his work. He's not really of Christ. Look how broken he is. He's so old and tired. Why do you listen to him? He's not even from here. He doesn't even go to the church. I don't think he likes us very much. Look at all the time he spends elsewhere. I mean, he doesn't even ask us to help. He just shows up here and, and, and the leaves. We don't even get to pitch in on any ministries at all, you know. And wouldn't it be better if we got to give some money to Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Right? They're trying to make it look like Paul's not doing the work. And Paul's saying, I'm doing the work. And the work is getting you guys to know who Jesus is. The Heacock Standard Version, get it together, y'all. We see some hints here that you wouldn't like Paul when he's angry. It's a little bit of a Hulk reference, right? But it made me think about this, right? We don't see Paul getting angry. He speculates anger a great deal in Scripture. I'm getting annoyed. I'm starting to get heated up. You guys better start acting right. I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be severe with you. Don't make me do this. But I can't imagine what it would have been like for somebody like Paul to actually be angry, really mad, frustrated to the point of having to, you know, just do some, some, some clashing. We're going we're gonna to have it out, right? He wants to avoid that. He has no desire to be harsh, but he will do so if provoked. And I say, I actually provoked when I think like, I'm not trying to provoke Paul. I disagree. The super apostles that he's mentioning absolutely are trying to provoke him. They are talking about him. It's a personal attack against Paul. I'm going to dissuade you from belief in his ministry, which is the ministry of Christ, by denigrating Paul. And this is why Paul gets so frustrated. This is not a joke to Paul. Paul does not care about his name being drugged through the muck. It's very evident. 
He's willing to boast about his weakness. We've talked a lot about this and read it over the last few weeks. Paul knows. What was it he said? And it, it, he said, but he wrote it's scripture. I, I'm better than them and I'm nothing, right? That's the summary. I mean, he knows he's nothing. But if he's nothing, they're less than nothing because he knows I'm doing more for Christ than they are. I know where I rank. I know what I understand. I've done the work. I know the word. They're talking about all this stuff. I've had the visions. I've done all that. But it doesn't matter because I don't matter insofar as I am not doing the work of Christ. Other than that, I'm refuse. I'm a whitewashed tomb. I mark the dead until Christ does something. That's the point. So when they besmirch Paul, and Paul's entire ministry is that of Christ, Paul's saying, careful, you're not besmirching me, you're besmirching Jesus Christ. Everything that I'm telling you is what he says, not me. If they're making up some other gospel, he talked about that as well, some new creative idea that's different than Paul's, well then it's different than God's. And woe to those that believe it. They're risking eternity and Paul's not going to stand for it. He's certainly not going to stand idly by while it happens. Next slide. Doubters, Paul's got those. Whoops, I guess, never mind, it's just a little delayed. Apologies. Paul's got some doubters. Uh, You see him talking about this here in this exact chapter, in uh, 13.3. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking of me, if, if somebody says, since you seek proof that, it's very clearly evident that people are, well, I don't know. Is Christ really speaking in him? Is there, is there any way we could possibly know that? <laughs> and Paul says, uh, well, there is. And since you want to know, let me tell you about that. And we don't debate this very much as a church. We talk about this a little bit today. We don't, we don't sit around and think like, I don't know, Paul, maybe, maybe he was a charlatan. Maybe he was kind of a scumbag. I don't know. This doesn't happen very much anymore. I'm sure there's some churches that do. But they're, you know, what a waste of time. I mean, uh, Paul stands in very, very high regard with regards to men in the Bible that did things for God. Pretty well dedicated. But the world, our world today, hates Paul. If you ever doubt that, go Google, if you're, if you're daring enough, and start looking for uh, arguments against uh, the, the salvation or the Bible not being true or inconsistencies in the Bible. And inevitably, you will see people targeting Paul's writings. Because Paul writes in a very uh, sarcastic tone occasionally. He uses a lot of tongue-in-cheek references. He does comparative and, and uh, kind of a allusion, uh, you know, a, a, a alludes to things. And anyway, it's his style of writing. But if you just take it verbatim and literally and don't read anything in context, it's really easy to pick it apart. And why would they want to bother? Because the world today still thinks if we could take the author of this book and besmirch them, then people won't believe in it. And they're true. It does work. They're right. It does work. It's true that if you could do that well enough, people will still steer clear. Why would you believe somebody that can't even do this or that or the other? But Paul's not worried about the world hating him. He's not worried about it then, and he's certainly not worried about it now, right? Where he is right now, I don't think he cares at all about who hates him or not. Still desires the good name of Christ to be proclaimed. And that leads us to Christ's power. Hold on, the slide's going to change here in a second. I'm sure of it. Maybe. Nope. All right, there we go. I'm just going to give this the old restart. Having a wonderful time. So Christ's power in us. Yes, fundamentally, yes, that's the answer. 
Well, what about, yes, but Christ also, yes. Now, can this be abused? Yes, of course it could. People could say, I could do things, right? Does this mean if I, if I was, was crucified, I could walk out of a tomb in three days? Yes, of course. It does mean that. Will you? I doubt it. But you could, because Christ did it. Could you turn water into wine? Yes. Will you be able to? Probably not. Why? Because if you were trying to turn water into wine right now, it's most likely not for God's glory. It's, I wonder if I can do this. I want to show off. I want people to think I'm cool. I want people to think that I'm like Christ. That's what I want. I want my name to be glorified. When Christ turned water into wine, it was because he was Christ. The apostles did work. Miracles after Christ was gone. Same kinds of stuff. Healings and some resurrections even. But it was never for their glory. It was always for God's glory. And God was using that early on to change the church. But is Christ's power in us? Absolutely 100% yes. But the way that Paul describes it is where this usually changes. Whoa, I can wield the power of Christ. Well, careful. Just as Christ was crucified in weakness, we died to our weaknesses. Well, that doesn't seem like power. Paul would argue differently. Oh, that's power. Christ's resurrection does not happen without Christ's death. Christ's death is not as meaningful unless he bears the wrath of God, which is suffering beyond all measure. This was no picnic. The power that Christ wielded was manifested through unbelievable weakness on his part for a time. But just like Christ was raised in power, we're born again to eternal life. Do I believe that we can do all things through Christ who gives me strength? Sure, I do believe that. Yes, it's what the Word says. However, what are the all things are going to do? (laughs) Paul's all things were certainly not to go become a king and a leader and take over this, that, or the other. Paul's all things was to to do the mission work of Christ at churches that he knew needed the Word. He spent his entire life suffering for the glory of God in his time, expecting Jesus at any moment. There was no time in Paul's world. Christ modeled salvation for us, and we follow him. That's exactly what Paul's doing. If Jesus can go to the cross, if Jesus can bear the wrath of God on Paul's behalf, then the least Paul can do is run himself ragged for the gospel. If you've been following along, it's time after time of Paul saying, oh, you want, you want me to boast about something? How about this? I was beaten and I was starved. He makes some very, very telling mentions, very brief. I was in Macedonia. We prayed for death. We thought for sure we'd die, but we, we didn't. <laughs> you know, Paul's tired. He's ready to be done. He's probably ready for retirement from gospel work. But you know what signifies retirement from gospel work for us believers? Death. That's how you know. That's when you're retired. You put your time in here till you don't breathe anymore on this earth, and then retirement. Paradise. Honest to goodness, real retirement. Paul's on board, 100%. So, check yourself before you wreck yourself. It's a great word. I made that up. I've never heard that anywhere else. <clears throat> Just kidding. Now, now, real quick, testing God is tricky business. Uh, but we are allowed to as he commands. So 
I'm not going to advocate, oh, yeah, test whatever you want. God said this, let's go test it, right? Uh, don't do that. God says, don't test me. However, there are times when we can be testing. In this case, we're not really testing God, we're testing ourselves as Paul commands. I have heard this twisted and, and pivoted in a million different ways, but let's remind ourselves of exactly what it says here. Examine yourselves to see whether or not, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Pretty straightforward. Test yourselves. But how? So Paul's words are tricky, but they're apt here. Let's not do what's right to appear saved. If you've not heard that spoken from this pulpit, you haven't been listening because we brought it up a number of times. Works do not save you. Performing salvation-like things on this earth saves nobody. Anybody can come up here, shake my hand, pray a prayer, say Jesus is Lord of their life. We can baptize them. We can give them, anoint them with oil. They can come to church every Sunday, serve dutifully, learn the word, start teaching a class, become a deacon, become an elder, lead the church, become a pastor, and go to hell. That's reality. All of those things without Jesus Christ get you nowhere. Period. But I've helped a thousand people. I led 15,000 people to Christ. I see some of them in heaven right now. That's exactly right. The little thing called unrighteous vessels. That's what you were. The Lord used you. You thought you had a leg up. You thought you could do both. You thought you could be a great pastor on the outside, but serve yourself. It was all about you and your glory. People were led to the Lord and they gave their life to the Lord and they are in heaven because of your work, but you were never saved. So that's enough. We don't do that to appear saved. We do what's right because we know we can't do what's right on our own. You want to talk about salvation, the feeling, the notion of being tested? It's seeing and understanding that every good thing that you produce has nothing to do with you. It's all the providence of God. Every good thing. Every good thing. Let, we will do. We should do what's right. But when we do that, we know that we're not... Just doing this because we finally got it together. You know, I finally crested the hill of, of misunderstanding, and now I'm doing the right things because I've, I know the difference, and, and that's good. Do I know the difference between right and wrong? Does Chris know? Yes, of course. Right? I'm well aware. But left to my own devices, I will trend wrong. I will trend wrong. I'll start to do things that appear right, but in my mind, it's because I want the glory. If you ever know, uh, I'm sure everybody's heard of Billy Graham, but people ask him a lot about this, these big things, these big things that he did. What's it like being so famous? And <clears throat> Billy Graham always had such a humility about all that. It was like a burden in some regards to be that famous. He wished people didn't know who he was. He wished there was a way that he could do what he did without him being known. That's just not practical in this world. In, the, in this world. Paul finds himself in the same boat. If you don't think Billy Graham had plenty of adversaries, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to liken him to Paul in every regard, but when somebody starts to do the work of the Lord, the attackers will come and attack them personally, and thus, by connection, attack the work of the Lord. Paul's saying, we're not worried about that. 
Because Billy Graham's going to stand up and say, Billy, you're, you did this and that and the other. I remember a story about him, and this is stuck in my craw. He I heard a sermon when he was a young man, and they said, write down a list of things that you're going to be praying over that you can, you can work on, thorns in your flesh, if you will. And he said, I started that when I was 19 or something. And this is an anecdote, so don't call me on truth. And he had like 20, so he had seven things on his list. He had seven things on his list that he really wanted to, to work on in his, in his life. And he said, I prayed over those things, and God took some away. And then if another one came up, I'd put one down. And they said in the interview, well, how, what's your list at now? And he said, uh, 31. After all this time in life, he's now got 31 things he's praying for. It didn't get better. He's now beginning to realize, nope, nope, I'm the problem here. I will not fix this. Only Christ will fix this. So if you went to Billy Graham and you say, hey, Billy, I heard this, that, and the other, he'd say, yeah, well, that sounds about right, yeah. I, uh, if you think for a minute that I'm worth a darn, think again. This is Paul's take, and this is my take, and this should be our take as a church. We go out and we do good things, but not because we're great. When we do things because we know God's doing it, we give glory to God for even our right deeds. The stuff that's gone right in my life, the things that I've done that are good or beneficial, seemingly, glory to God. Glory to God. Not me. Glory to God. I'm happy to help. People thank me. I would say, and it's my pleasure, but it's my pleasure to serve God and give Him the glory, right? Now, can we go too far with this? You know, it's a kind of pet peeve of mine. comes and says, hey, I like, the, I, like your, I like your garden or whatever. Like, you know, amen. Glory to God. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I know, but you, you, I saw you out there working. I, oof, I can only do any, I, I can only work because of God. I, the breath I breathe, yeah, okay. So I'm just not going to talk to you about that anymore, right? Paul is aware that the things he's doing is good. He's not just talking about like, oh, I didn't do anything. It was just a, I was like an automaton and God just, you know, drug me there and I woke up and I was like, what happened? A bunch of people came to Christ? No, he's participating. But he's participating because he knows Christ has changed his heart and now he's fueled in a different way. Truth is truth. So we see Paul talking about this truth here. It's very interesting. The saved can, can deny the truth, but they know it. We could try to run, but we know what we run from. Now, this is tricky business. Kind of uh, summarize this as an atheist that can't stop talking about God might be rebelling against known truth. I'm sure if we all think about it, we're going to run into this situation about like, uh, you understand the truth, but you don't want it to be true, right? It's like if you find out maybe someone's cheating on you or stealing from you. And you know, you're looking at the evidence, and you're like, oh, no. But I can't, I want to deny it because I don't want to believe this. But it's true. When, when Paul's talking about the truth of Christ here, especially when he's talking about, this is in 13.8, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. This is another one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay. Well, I guess everything I do is for the truth. All right? I can't do anything against the truth. So anything I do, I guess, is okay. It almost sounds like a license to sin. Right? Hey, you, you stole from me. Well, I can't do anything against the truth. Right? Paul said. <laughs> so what Paul's saying here is, that's true. The saved? Right. You can do things that are not good, but you will know they are not good. You're not really doing them against the truth. The sin that I commit, I know is sin. There's no doubt about it. That is different when you know who Christ is. 
That is a different thing. The world, they might seriously not even know. They might not be aware. If they're not understanding of the law, the law is what lets us understand what sin was, and we start to put the picture together. Oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. I need saved. That's the difference. And when I mention this thing about the atheists, that's the goal. You might see people that can't shut up about God. They can't. They're never saying good things. They're trying to debunk the Bible. Well, probably maybe what's going on here is they've started to understand that this seems true, but I can't face it. So I'm going to bring everybody else around me down. Like, come on, somebody come with me and let me know this is not true. This can't be true. I don't want to save you. I want to do things my way. It's compelling, but I don't want to believe it. So I'm going to war actively against it. Paul's point here is, hey, as believers, let's not do that. There's going to be times in your life where maybe you start to drift away. You start to come back. Where a lot of these people are in Corinth. Where a lot of us are today. Things started out pretty good. Life got hard. You got upset. I started falling back into old habits. I'm too embarrassed to go back. I can't go back. I've probably sinned too much. Have you sinned? Yes. Has Christ paid for those if you are saved? Yes. Well, then we can sin all we want. You can, but don't do it. That's Paul's entire crux. Let's knock that off. Let's, you're saved. Act like it. You say Jesus is the Lord of your life. Act like it. But just know that if you drift away and you start making bad decisions, or you know people that do, Paul's talking to people who are making bad decisions in Corinth. You can't do anything against the truth. You know the truth. You are sinning knowing it's sin. You can't come to me and say, I wasn't aware. You are aware. I know you're aware. I told you. We talk about this father uh, and kid relationship, right? This starts to, this, it's, it's evident that Paul sees these Corinthians as his children, children in the faith. He wants what's best for them. He wants what's best for them. So why bother Paul? Why is he doing this? Well, he wants a nice visit with his kiddos, right? That's the reality. He wants to come to Corinth and, and be welcomed with open arms. He wants, to, uh, he wants them to say, oh, it's Paul, and we love Paul, and he's, he's here to, say, to encourage us, and, and it's going to be great, and we're looking forward to that. Hooray, Paul's here. And he's like, oh, good, look at all the people. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to be harsh or corrective. Right? Anyone that's ever had to deal with, with kids or, or maybe even insulin adults, it's you don't want to do this, right? You, you, you have to. Order must be maintained, right? What's right is right. But you, there's no desire to be harsh or corrective. Can't we just stop? Can we just be quiet? Can we just get along? Can we just act like we have some sense so I don't have to sit here and constantly sit down, don't touch her, get over, give her that toy back? I'm tired of all that. That's exactly how Paul's feeling. We've been over this. It's time for you guys to learn. I need you to learn. He wants to celebrate with them in love and peace. And he wants to build up and not tear down. Those are Paul's words. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. The Lord has not given Paul authority for tearing down. He wants to build up. Now, we can always say, well, a little dip, is that's true. It's true. It's a means to an end. And he will be harsh. But he's going to be harsh because he's trying to build up. This is what has been given by the Lord to Paul. I'm here to build up. And then, so then what's, what's left to do after that, right? It's just beautiful. I just love this. Finally, brothers, rejoice. I mean, just amen to that. That's a great way. Just rejoice. How do we rejoice? What does he mean by that after all this? Restore. 
comfort, agree, live in peace. It's very simple, and it's very divine. This is not happenstance. A lot of times in the Word, you'll see commands given to men, and they are quite simple. There, I, I was trying to think of some examples of this, and it could just be my, my feeble mind failed me, but I could not think of a single complex command from God to mankind. Now, God is infinitely complex. Theology, very complicated. But theology is studying God. Us trying to understand God and all the reasons for this, that, and the other and put together a fuller picture, extremely complicated. But when it comes to God telling us, it's always very simple. Now, you might say, well, Leviticus, pretty big book. Yeah, but if you read it, it's not like, okay, now there's a series of steps. Will occur, and, and Now, if this happens, and always seek this and that and the other, and you'll need to have this, and then some scrying, none of that is occurring. Don't do this. If, that, okay, it's, if that's unclean, then it needs to go over there for a week. Straightforward. Then Christ comes, fulfills all that for us, showing us how even we couldn't do that, and, and gives us orders just like what Paul is giving here. Care for one another. Restore comfort. Be agreeable. Live in peace. Rejoice in that. So simple and so divine. Next, there we go. Paul's points to ponder. All right. These are the the four points for today. Heed the advice of wise counsel, especially en masse. Lots of counsel for one person or the same counsel from a lot of people. Heed it. Heed it. Second, examine yourselves for evidence of faith. Third, don't relish harsh words or deeds, even if necessary. And then finally, rejoice and seek restoration. So the first one here, heed the advice of wise counsel, especially en masse. Uh, If three people think something, it's worth considering. (laughs) Now you notice I say heed, not that's the gospel truth, right? I understand conspiracies can happen. I know this, right? You can get a band of brothers together and go tear down walls and ruin people. I know this happens. It's a real thing, but it doesn't mean we don't heed it. Interesting. Y'all said that. Well, let's talk about it, right? Let's look at the evidence and think about this. If one person has mentioned it three times, it's worth considering. I heed it. Doesn't mean you do it. Doesn't mean you take it and act on it, but, but be thoughtful. Heed the advice. This is what Paul's whole point is of making mention of these two or three witnesses. I'm telling you this, you're hearing it from some other people and you're disregarding it because other people are telling you all they know what they're talking about. Everybody? The whole world's wrong except you? Come on, right? Think about it. Paul wants what's best for them. He's told them three times to fix something. He probably just wants to destroy us. Not true. If only they would heed his advice. Now, this is not a requirement. However, when crimes are potentially committed, the law is called, period. Just to reiterate that. This is about corrective action in churches. What the point Paul is mentioning here is, hey, I'm pretty, pretty good at my job. I've told you this three times. Enough's enough. Right? Start acting like you care or listen or whatever else. I'm tired of defending myself. I'm tired of begging for you to listen to me. You know, en- enough. How many times am I going to have to tell you? Anybody ever said that to their kids or anything? <laughs> How many times are we going to have to go over this? You should know better. Right? This was Paul. You could sum up 2 Corinthians by, Dear Corinthians, you should know better. Love Paul. Right? Now, he's much more uh, you know, complete in that, but that's kind of the gist here. But we don't require 
two witnesses. If one person comes up and says something to me, it's going to be thoughtful. It's, it's going, I'm going to be thoughtful about what they said, right? I guarantee it. I may disregard it. I don't, don't necessarily agree. I may ask for some help. Hey, what, someone mentioned this. What do you think? But I'm not going to disregard it. Second, examine yourselves for evidence of faith. Don't assume you're saved because. I don't care what you put after that. Well, I came to church every day. I did this. I did that. Don't do that. When it comes from the Word of God to examine ourselves, let's examine ourselves. Test yourself. Know why you do what you do. If you're confused, seek wise counsel. One of the greatest things that Satan has pulled off is the idea of the lone Christian. Right? I don't, I'm spiritual and I believe, but I don't go to church. I don't need the church to do what I do. I can't tell you how valuable wise counsel is. Accountability with other people. They'll say, hey, I know you're going through something, but you know, I've noticed this and that and the other. Like, oh, I hadn't even realized. Or I, I'm struggling with doubt today. I'm struggling with doubt. I don't even know if I'm saved. I just woke up today and I feel terrible. When you've got a, a church body, you can go to some people that you know and say, help me understand how to test myself because I'm feeling like I'm, gotten, I'm getting an F right now in salvation. Awesome, let's go through that. Let's pray together, right? Let's talk about the fact that the, your, your sadness and your remorse and this and that and the other is good evidence that, you, that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And let's be encouraged, right? Not, oh no, if you keep saying like that, you're liable to not even be saved. So get it together. Good luck. So many people are here on little islands of their own with no fellowship with the body, forsaking that. It's just, we're told to not forsake that, but they're doing that. And I'm okay, and I read my Bible, and I do my things, and that's, and that's great to do all that. But there's a component of things that are so difficult to take on by yourself. And you're going to say, well, how do I know that? Chris, how do you know that it's going to be hard for people? Because God constructed the church. <laughs> he did do it. If we were better alone, we would never have had an organization of the church. God would have said, hey, go make disciples of the other people, then leave them be and let them do that too. But don't gather up. Don't waste time with fellowshipping. Don't do any corporate anything. Don't gather in homes and share the word. You'll learn on your own once you're saved. We don't do that. We gather together and we teach and learn and celebrate and worship together because that is the way God wants it to work. None of this is intended to make you nervous, but rather assured. Paul's point here is not test them so that he can weed out the non-believers. It's test yourself so that those that aren't maybe where they need to be can cross that bridge with Christ. Start to take on a better, deeper understanding of what salvation means. Start to see that, like, this is a process. I'm, I, I mean, I am saved, but I, I'm, I'm still not in heaven. And so between when I know that Christ is, I've, I'm elected, and, and I go to be with Him, what am I supposed to be doing? And the answer is growing in holiness. We call that sanctification. That's what's supposed to be happening. Well, that's too difficult. I keep stumbling and falling. I wish I had somebody there to help me. Welcome to church. This is not a gathering of people that got it all together. This is a gathering of people that keep dragging each other out of the muck over and over as we trudge through the quicksand of sin and death and doubt and fear every day. Throw me a branch. I'm on stable ground for now. Come this way. Whoops, now I've slipped. Now you pull me out. That's what we're doing. If you think we're on a hill and we're just like, oh, we, listen, the, the poor unsaved law, you know, pray for them. No, no, no. We are them, but for the grace of God. When we test ourselves for this, we should come to the conclusion that, yeah, doggone it, I am no good. But I am so thankful that Christ is changing me. He's sanctifying me. His work in me is producing good fruit. That's an encouragement. 
Yeah, I'm still struggling. I'm still a scumbag, but I kind of knew that. You know, there's a saying of, uh, I'm not the man I ought to be, but thank God I'm not the man I was. That's worth its weight in gold every day. It's got a little bit better for me, a tiny bit better. But it doesn't matter if it's good, bad, or otherwise, because God is sovereign and Christ has saved me. Third, don't relish harsh words or deeds, even if necessary. Sometimes the wrath of man will be borne upon the foolish. I don't know what to tell you, right? The Heacock standard version of this would be uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Hold on. You do bad, make bad choices, bad things happen, right? You make great choices, bad things happen, right? But if you're making bad choices, get ready, right? Play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. That's just how it goes. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy it. If you read this book and think, man, Paul's looking forward to getting down there and busting some heads, I would disagree with you. Paul's tone is, he's lamenting the state of things, but he can't ignore it. If you know somebody that you love dearly and you see them start dabbling in drug use and it starts to waste them away, probably don't want to just sit by and let it happen and say, I'll be praying for them. You're probably going to start taking action. You're probably going to call them up. Can we go out to lunch? Can I talk to you? Can I, can I take you to counseling? Can we go somewhere? I'll go with you. I'll take you wherever you need to go. Don't die to this foolishness. Now, that's drug use, and that's easy for us to grasp because probably all of us have been impacted by that. Someone said, I have cancer. I'm not getting it treated. I don't care. I don't care. I'm ready to go. We plead. Please. Come on. God has provided miracles all over the house. If God wants me healed, he'll heal me. Well, then let's go to the doctor and let him heal you. Right? Oh, no, no. I'm, I have a miracle. There is a miracle. It's a miracle that there's a big building 30 minutes north of here where they'll pull cancer out of your body, shoot things at it, and cancer goes away. That's a miracle. That's what we would say to people. But when it comes to salvation, sometimes it's like, oh, you know, that's good luck. I'll pray for you. I gave them the track. I did, you know, what I'm going to do. No, 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 no. Don't enjoy punishment. Help them to correct. Yes. Do they need it? Yes. Do I have to say something stern to them? Yes. But I hate it. Why? Because I love you. I don't want to come in here and thump heads. I don't want to talk about the bad fruit, the bad choices, the lack of, of any evidence of salvation, the fact that you're, you're doing the things that we know we're not supposed to be doing. You seem to say you know better, but you're not doing anything about it, and you're starting to fall back into it as if, well, this is just the way I'm wired. Yeah, that's true, but Christ is going to rewire you. You're going to war against that flesh, but if you don't fight, you're not at war. You're a slave to sin again. Paul's pained by having to be so stern, especially in person. Let's not look forward to severe use of authority. It's sometimes fun to know what's right and wrong, but church, man, some of the worst people I've ever met in my life went to church. Period. They claimed Christ on this hand. They couldn't wait to turn the screws on somebody on the other. What's this? What are you wearing? How are you acting? Who's, you, know, you can't park there. You can't sit here. I don't like that song. I don't like that word. You speak too loud. What's wrong with that? Why do you have such long hair? Why don't you lose some weight? Anyway, Jesus loves you. Oh, does he? Well, I hope so, because nobody else here seems to. I felt that way countless times in church. It's not about me, but man, does that speak volumes. If you love me, why aren't you encouraging me? Church, if we look to the world around us and we throw them all under the bus, oh, look at this. Center, 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 center. Hit it. No thanks. We have missed the boat. Paul's coming back to a church of people that he loves. He doesn't want to punish them any more than we ought to want to punish our kids. Punish people that we love and care for. You don't want to do it. You want them to do what's right. 
Paul's saying, I don't care if you do what's right. I want you to know Jesus. If you say you know Jesus and you keep doing wrong things and you're falling into bad patterns of people that are lying to you, I doubt that you know Jesus. That breaks my heart. That's what I want to fix. I don't want you to do right things. I want you to know what right things are because Christ is changing your heart. And as a church, we should be a beacon of light and hope to the world, not a series of do-not-dos do that we're better known for than anything else. So don't go over there if you're not wearing a suit. They won't let you in the door. That should not be us, church. Paul's not talking about little tiny things here. He's talking about massive amounts of sexual immorality that have become almost part of the church's proceedings. He wants that stopped. But he wants them to do it because Christ has changed their hearts. If somebody says to you, I used to be an alcoholic, but I'm not anymore. And then you come home and the car's been backed into a tree and you find empty bottles littering the house. Smells like booze. What would you say? You're drinking again. Oh, no. No, I'm not. I don't drink anymore. What's the deal with the car? Where are these? I don't know. I don't know. These are just empty bottles. I just collect empty bottles, but I don't drink it. You wouldn't believe them. It'd probably break your heart. No. No, I don't want this for you or us. This is where Paul's at. We give up our old sinful lives. And then he hears all these tales of old sinful lives. Guys, I thought you said you weren't going to do that anymore. Well, I don't. I, you know, but now we've turned it into a part of our, our church thing, right? I don't drink to get drunk, but we do have a ceremony at church where we all drink. Like, why are you doing that? Well, because we want to. Well, that's bad. Please stop or we'll have to, to deal with a, a severe use of authority. But there's a big difference between correcting it and, being, and looking forward to it. When you see somebody backslide, when you see somebody struggling, we shouldn't enjoy correction. It's something that needs done. And finally, rejoice and seek restoration. What an ending. Be kind. Um, I know it's a great oversimplification, right? But when we're talking about relationships within the church and outside the church, even for those in authority, seek restoration. Try to mend fences. Try to be nice to one another. Try to care for one another. Living with loving kindness for others draws us close to God. If we, if we emulate the loving kindness that God had for us, the extraordinary lengths he went to be able to spend eternity with us, if we emulate just a hair, a fraction of that to the world around us, it doesn't make a humongous difference. People will start to actually believe that we care. Don't act like you care. Don't act like you're kind. Be kind. Love, care for people, have compassion for them. Know that they are stuck in a place that could be extraordinarily dark and lonely and seemingly no way out, clawing and, and clamoring onto things that give them comfort. And that, that stuff might be substance abuse or hatred or any number of things that we find distasteful, but that's all they've got. That's how they identify. This is what gives me strength. We know better, but let's not berate, let's not isolate people in the church because we have a disagreement with them. Let's mend those fences and get priorities in right order. Be kind. So what about us? If we summarize it here, our action items, if you will, be vigilant and heed advice, especially if you hear it multiple times. That's a pretty good policy, right? If I hear something from a bunch of people, I should consider it. We talk about this like, well, I don't know about that. Some things maybe, right? I like one example is if somebody came up to you and said, your fly's down. Would you say, 
we better get a couple more witnesses or I'm not even going to check. No, you wouldn't. You'd be like, excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Oh, oh, no, Paul said. Anyone else see my flight now? Two, three, fine. I'll... No, of course not. Some things we heed right away. It's okay to heed advice. If you hear, hey, your fly's down, you're like, oh, I'll get to it later. Hey, by the way, your fly's down. Oh, it's the third time. It's probably too late, right? At this point, whatever's going to happen has already happened. So heed advice. Heed advice. Second, trust in Christ for all strength. If you're starting to feel like you're getting it together, and I mean, finally crossed the hill here. I've, 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 I've gotten rid of the old me, and now the new has come. And I'll take it from here, Christ. Knock that off. Paul, you will not see anybody. Paul is somebody that's got an unbelievable pedigree of understanding and knowledge of who Jesus Christ was personally. But all the time in his mass, vast amounts of knowledge, he only boasts as a joke, and he talks so much about how Christ is everything. Paul is nothing. Christ is everything. Paul is bad. Christ is good. Whatever you can think of Christ, Paul sees himself as the polar opposite. That should be us. Everything we do that's good or worthy of any glory is of God and do God. Third, test yourself and be confident that you are saved. I just want to reiterate that. If, if you're hearing my words and you think, oh my gosh, I'm not saved, oh thanks. He's talking me out of what was going to be a pretty good Sunday now. I don't even know if I'm saved. That's not my goal. My goal and Paul's goal here is to assure you of salvation. If you're not assured of salvation, talk to us. Office of CalvaryHeights.org. You can hit up the Facebook page, find us in person, come to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday night. We'd love to talk about this and get the assurance that we are promised in the Word. The goal here is not to be isolating ourselves. It's to be well assured that we are indeed uh, confident of, of our relationship. And the last bullet here that we can all do, restore a relationship, comfort a weary brother or sister, be agreeable, and live in peace. These are not my words. These are Paul's words. You're probably noticing that you stop right before verse 12, a holy kiss. <laughs> well, if you're into holy kisses, by all means do it. It's a cultural thing. It's not as important today, uh, to me at least, but I'm not opposed, but there will be no holy kissing on camera. We don't want any, any uh, scandals. But what Paul's getting at here, listen to this close. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a, a greeting that is set aside, something unique for Christianity, something that you know. I care about you. I'm greeting you in a very special way. And all the saints greet you. We're in this together, church. Let's act like we're in this together for a greater good, far greater than us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for a awesome time to get into the Word. Thank you for a powerful closing chapter for a, a powerful book, a book that really cuts to the core of many issues that we face, the church then faced. Lord, I pray that we heed these words just as we would heed advice and things that we hear from others. Lord, that we take feedback from within the body seriously. If somebody comes to us with a concern um, or a question, Lord, that we don't just dismiss it because you know we think we have already answered that adequately or whatever, Lord, but we heed those things and we are thoughtful and caring about that, that we restore a relationship that might seem fractured by misunderstandings. Help us, Lord, to be more like you so that the world can see very clearly who you are and know the truth that you didn't come down here to create churches that want to bicker and war and fight and accuse and be judgmental. 
No, you came down here to create churches that can spread the good news of your message, your gospel message, the ultimate good news, that there's an eternal life. And it's freely available. It's already been paid for. It doesn't cost a thing. 